Ta-da. You got it. Because, you know, we, we're always doing theology from a place and to a place. Now, that can be limiting or it can be enriching. You know, walking alongside of Native American, First Nations, Aboriginal, Indigenous Christians, for me, has been just absolutely mind-boggling because they understand as they come and read scripture, they read Genesis 1 in a way that I was never taught to read it. What they're seeing is relationship, whether they're seeing relationship with creator in the world that was created, but us with the rest of creation. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. What comes to your mind when you hear the word theology? I remember the very first time that I ever heard the word. I was a junior in high school, and we were doing this project where we took a test. And that test showed us what careers we were wired for. And my test came back with three possibilities. Number one was a lawyer. I thought, wow, I like to argue. I like to debate. I like to learn. I like to grow. And lawyers make good money. So lawyer looks looked pretty good. Not to mention, I was reading some John Grisha books at the time and the lawyer was always the hero. So I had that thought that was a cool idea. Second was politician. I thought, wow, that's even better. I like I like ordering people around. <laughs> I like speaking in front of people. That sounds pretty cool. I could be a politician and law and politics go together. I could do both. And then there was the third option, theologian. And I went, what in the world is a theologian? So I had to go open up Webster to see what he had to say about it. And I learned that it was a, a person who studies God or how someone worships or knows God. That really intrigued me. Of course, it wasn't as lucrative as the first two, but that's where God took me. To be a theological thinker, to contemplate who he is and what it means to follow him faithfully in the midst of our world. Now, I know when I say the word theology, there are eyebrow raises. For some, it's actually a very scary word. And for others, it seems totally irrelevant to everyday life. I know there are some, they love theology. They see it as the truth with two T's, the truth. And for them, it's the definitive word for every argument. And they just grab a hold of it and they just eat it and dwell on it and want to talk about it all the time. They love it. They just want to throw their arms around it, embrace it and hug it and hold on to it. But others, they see it as like a straitjacket. It's inflexible. And it's sort of like math. Two plus two equals four, and it takes all the fun out of pursuing God. And we know that neither one of those are really true. Theology isn't math. It's not a straitjacket, and it's not meant to be something that we use as an instrument of control, but something as guardrails of guidance, if you will. Theology is born in the messiness of human life and understanding. 
Now, to be sure, and let me clear this up, theology is grounded in something. It is God's revelation, primarily of himself, in both the world, which we call natural revelation, and especially in his word, the Bible, which is special revelation. But John chapter 1 reminds us that God gets into the middle of the hurt and difficulty and reality of life with us. And that God's truest word is Jesus Christ, God the Son, God's revelation of himself in his deepest and truest form. And that is Jesus, a Jewish man born in scandal in a backwater town in a rebellious province of the greatest empire on earth, filled with politics and religious strife, prejudices and expectations. In a word, it was messy. And while God didn't give us a user's manual per se and how we work out, how we follow him in every circumstance of life, he did give us the Bible, which is the revelation of himself and how we might know how to follow him and actually helps us to learn more about who he is and how he would be entering into our world and our messy lives. But that requires us to do theology ourselves, which means bringing the Bible to bear on our cultural circumstances. For example, how do we view our bodies? Some Christians see us just as souls and that our bodies really don't matter. But it is the bodies that we live in and experience life. There are those, actually, we see this right now with transgenderism, where people say, I'm not what my biology says that I am. It's what I feel that I am. This is why we need to have a theology of the body to show that God did create us as his image bearers, that we are in bodies and that we are engendered and we see the world as male and female. That's doing theology. How we bring the Bible and God's story to bear upon us is an example of doing theology. And we all do it. The question is, is are we doing it rightly? Which means we're going to encounter situations that are going to be tough. It's no wonder then that theology can be hard to do at times because we're, we're dealing with very complex things. Euthanasia, the end of life, dealing with the, the effects of technology on who we are and how we live in the middle of the world. How do we view plastic surgery? How do we view transgenderism and LBGTQ and all of these other issues that we face day in and day out? These are deep waters. And when we add to the fact that the Bible was written to a culture thousands of years ago that spoke a totally different language and understood things so much differently than our time, how do we do this? How do we do it faithfully? Because we have this tendency to assume at times that the Bible was written to us. And it wasn't written to us. It was written for us, but not to us at that moment in time in that culture. It was meant to have an effect on us in the here and now. And circumstances, while very different, still shows us the truth of who God is. This is why we have to understand the power of context. And that has implications for how we go about doing theology. In today's deep conversation, I am talking with Gene Green, a former missionary, professor emeritus of New Testament at Wheaton College, and author and editor of Majority World Theology. We believe that the future of the church is multi-ethnic and that many of the answers we are looking for have already been answered by our brothers and sisters around the world who have encountered similar circumstances before we have. For example, just let me lay this out there. How do we view Zoom church or streaming services online? You know, we never had to think about that until the pandemic happened and the world shut down. But the Chinese house church has already been dealing with that for years because if they met, they would have been killed. 
And so Zoom was a way for them to worship in secret and safely. Are you starting to get the picture of what it means to go about doing theology? I hope so. We believe that the church in the West is actually stuck right now. It's in a status quo, maintenance, doing the same methods that it's been, that it's been doing for the last 40 to 50 years. And it reminds me of a time where I got my car stuck in a big old patch of mud. No matter how hard I tried, no matter how much I hit the accelerator or turned the wheel, pushed or pulled, I couldn't get unstuck. I couldn't. I even recruited other people and tried pulling back and forth. No, turning angles, nothing worked. Even putting sand in the, by the tires, but nothing worked. I had to actually have someone grab a winch and then pull me out. And many of the troubles today we are facing have already been faced by followers of Jesus across the world or across time. We're simply tying our winch to them, having them help us to get unstuck. And if you believe that the church in the West is stuck like we do, then join us as we seek to liberate the church from the status quo. Simply click the link in your show notes and help Jesus's church become what God wants her to be. That's why we're talking with Gene Green about majority world theology so that we might help the church get unstuck. You might be asking, hold on, what's a majority world and what does that have to do with theology? I'm glad you asked. Let's dive in. Happy listening. Gene Green, welcome to Apollos Watered. Well, uh, thank you for the invitation to be here with you and with all of the listeners and viewers of Apollos Waters. It's just great to be here. Oh, that's good. That's good. I'm glad to have you on the show. And we're going to talk about majority world theology in a bit. But before we get to that, are you ready for the Fast Five? I don't know if I'm ready. We're going to find out. We're going to find out. All right. Here's a question. One first question. And again, this is just a little something about you, something that you enjoy, but your favorite vacation destination and why? That's an easy one. Oh, favorite vacation destination is a place where we used to live. Uh, Deborah, my wife and I uh, lived in uh, outside of Aberdeen, Scotland, in a little village called Torfins, and it was up the Dee River. And anytime we have an opportunity to return there, uh, we do it. In fact, for our 50th wedding anniversary, uh, we returned back in March to uh, to Torfins. We stayed in Bankery right outside of it. And it is stunningly beautiful. And uh, we left there in the end of the 1970s, 1979. And we can go back in 2022, 2023, and still be greeted by name there, that little village where we lived, one of our favorite places on earth. Wow. How big is the, how big is the village? Uh, At the time, it was a place of maybe 400 houses, a little farming village, and we became part of village life. In fact, it's very relevant for our conversation today because Deborah and I being Midwesterners, I mean, we didn't know much about the world and, uh, uh, we went there and spent three years among the Scots in Northeast Scotland. And my wife worked as a nurse and then a uh, a midwife in the National Health Service. And we learned this cross-cultural journey. Mm. Uh, we learned the linguistic barriers because a lot of folk would speak broad Scots. Oh, feel like you, laddie. Oh, I made that for yourself. You know, and, and it was it was a marvelous a baptism. And what it means to cross those cultural boundaries 
and being disoriented and going through the process of culture shock and then uh, cultural adaptation where we found out that they do things better than we do. And uh, they they taught us a lot. And I think that's what prepared uh, us for a living in Latin America and getting engaged with uh, majority world brothers and sisters. It really was uh, a seminal important moment. So that's where we go on on vacation. Or let me put it this way, in British way. That's where we go on holiday. <laughs> so what was easier? This isn't one of the questions, but picking up Spanish or Scottish dialect? Oh, well, my my wife learned to change the inflection of her voice so she sounded a bit more Scottish. Uh, me, I never got it. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and if you want to, if if any of your, uh, your folk want to learn what that's about, read some of the older versions of George MacDonald's novels. Uh, he was from that area. And it's all in in broad Scots. Uh, so for her, it was that. And uh, we went to language school in Costa Rica in 1983. Instituto de Idiomas, or sometimes I'll say Instituto de Idiotas. Idiot. <laughs> That's what we were. You know, um, we were we were learning Spanish and again, you know, learning, learning culture. And so I was uh, ended up. Oh, my word. Uh, ended up teaching. 12 credit hours, uh, four of those were Greek after I learned Spanish for a year. It was, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, but it was great because language is a gateway to culture. Uh, you, you, you don't get it just by translation. You, you gotta, you gotta speak it and conceptually it brings you into the conversation. That's one of the reasons why we read Greek and Hebrew. And Aramaic, you know, we, we want to get under the skin of the biblical authors and we engage in this cross-cultural journey as we do biblical studies and theology as well, right? It is. It's also why we advocate for Bible translation today so that we can get into the different culture and in the different vernaculars. I know after being in the inner city of Chicago, the language that was spoken oftentimes was not everything that you would read in certain scriptures. And I it would always surprise me. But let's, you said you've been married for over 50 years. Congratulations. 50 years. 50 oh, 50 years. years. Okay. 50, 50 years. years. Next month will be, uh, we'll uh, finish 51. Uh, Deborah was five when we got married. I got, I was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no, we, we did marry young. You know, back in those days, my mom had to sign for me to get married. And uh, how old are you? I was 20 and she was 19. And she we had to sign together. for you? Really? Oh, yeah. It was, it was, it was marvelous. It's not the type of thing I'd recommend, but, but God was gracious to us. We were young Christians and, uh, uh, loved the Lord in a good church, had a lot of good supporting structures around us. Uh, and so it, it's been great. So, uh, it, it, wonderful to have that soulmate through life. I, my grandparents were married for 72 years. Oh, my word. And they, she was, my grandmother was 21 and my grandfather was 16 and, and they were farmers. So that wasn't yeah, yeah. crazy, crazy. But I used to make the joke. I'm like, how in the world did you get a 21 year old woman to marry you at 16? He would just smile. And I looked at her and I went, you know what you did like illegal in like 45 states. <laughs> he just smiled. I mean, but it was different. It was a different time. I mean, you're talking 1939. Yeah. No, this is a different time. But yeah. speaking of that, speaking of time, sometimes I like to go back and, and here's a question for you. 
what's the one thing that you miss most? And I'm not talking about people, just saying that you miss most from being a teenager. You know, I think about, especially at this age of life, I think a lot about, about those times and, um, you know, how incredibly uh, delightful, you know, everything in life, life was except mm. for, uh, except for school. I could care less about, about school. <laughs> you go on to become a scholar. <laughs> yeah, no, it, you know, it was, uh, I was always the uh, cliff notes guy and uh, finding <laughs> ways to get around reading rather than reading. So, you know, it is, is strange, but, but things I miss, you know, it was that sense of growing up, outside of Chicago and that discovery, those discoveries through that time of, uh, of film, of the spoken word of music. I mean, I was down in old town, listening to Thelonious Monk and, uh, uh, just the, uh, it was, it was a wonderful time of, of discovery and that, that, that sense of, of wonder, uh, that was there. We discovered some things that we shouldn't have discovered. But at the end of, um, you know, after second year of college, when Christ grabbed me, you know, discovering then the the faith and, and what it meant to be a follower of Christ and, and the hope that was in the middle of that. Because through high school, you know, it was living kind of willy nilly and bouncing like a pinball through life. But then to have Christ come in and grab me and a lot of other folk. I, I was part of the Jesus movement and we were a bunch of long hair hippies. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, we were, we were part of the counterculture and Vietnam war protests and all that. And God just moved tremendously in revival. And, and right at this moment, you know, you can see some of this going on at, at Asbury uh, College yeah. and Asbury yeah. Seminary. You know, we were, we're watching that as, as these young people are hour after hour. They're there in, 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 in worship and praise to God and God just getting a hold of their hearts. That's wonderful. That's what was happening at that time. We were out to win the world for Jesus. And um you know, so um, uh, high school, yeah, bounce around like pinball, but but God steps in, it stepped in a little bit later in my life. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLT Bibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything. And the NLT is the Bible you can understand. Then God led you, obviously, you've gone on to different studies, you become an academic, you encounter different cultures, you're writing about majority world. But those who have traveled around the world, 
and they've interacted with so many different cultures. One of the, the, the always interesting experiences is food. So what is the, is it inevitably you encounter food that you've never, ever tried before, and you probably wouldn't try without being in this cultural situation in which you are in. So what's the craziest food you've ever eaten? Well, I don't know if it's, it's so crazy, uh, but it was a surprising delight. Uh, okay. When I was in uh, Costa Rica, I was sent uh, very early on in my years up there to uh, from San Jose to Rio Naranjo to uh, at the uh, at a campsite where I was going to teach a course. And at breakfast, we would have huevo picado y gallo pinto. Huevo picado, scrambled eggs, know that. But there's a stuff called gallo pinto. And it was a mixture of black beans and rice for breakfast. Hmm. Now, when I was growing up, we ate Cheerios. <laughs> and uh but uh, let me tell you you know for um i had a breakfast conversion at that time huh. you know to have uh huevo picado gallo pinto which really you know for for lunch there'd be rice and beans and then uh, for dinner there'd be beans and rice and rice <laughs> <laughs> and then in the morning there was gallo pinto which was the leftover beans and rice from the night before and uh and heated up oh it was marvelous oh with with jugo de naranja fresh squeezed orange juice and wonderful costa rican coffee and pan tostado and baguette bread with uh, a little mantequilla, a little butter on it. Oh man, it's, I'm I'm getting hungry here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's oh. always funny to me about the foods that you do acquire a taste for, but it's also funny to me to see what people have tried. Like I, I told yeah. you in the pre-show walkthrough that Scott Moreau was on. And I said, "What's the funniest food you've eaten?" And he goes, "Fermented mare's milk." Mongolia. And then he said, that's when the party started. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really? Really? Or, or when we lived in Scotland, it was haggis. Which Did you have haggis? Have press. you had it? Oh, oh, it's wonderful stuff. What? Oh, it, it, it's reputation is uh, not uh, well earned. I so, mean, it so it's really, a sheep's stomach. What's in the sheep's stomach? I, I don't know. You don't ask. You just, don't ask. <laughs> you just eat it. Yeah, just, you eat, just it. eat it. And now, right now, you can find uh, haggis at the finest restaurants in Scotland. Uh, yeah, well, and, it's oh, cultural. Very, very commonplace on on the menu. But, you know, again, for the topic we're talking about today, it's these wonderful uh, excursions into another culture yeah. and discovering stuff you go. That really tastes good. It does. I did. I did not expect it to taste good. And as we're talking about majority world brothers and sisters, and and the developments that are coming out of those communities, and within uh, the uh, obviously the black community, the Asian American, the the uh, Latinx communities, yeah. within indigenous communities, listening to these conversations, it's it's tasty. And it's wonderful. And mm -hmm. and that diversity is something that I always say we need to learn how to celebrate and not just 
examine and and accept or not accept a lot of people and you've seen this i'm sure a lot of folk wonder well what's coming out of the majority world we don't know about it i remember a true story i was teaching on majority world uh, theology at Wheaton College. Uh, we put a course in the curriculum, make sure that there was an anchor for it in the master's program. And one day I asked, um, at the beginning of the course, I, I was asking the students, I said, you know, why, why are you in this course? What, what's this all about? And one student raised his hand and he said, well, we need to learn about majority theology so we know how to correct them. <laughs> that's not a that's that's a that's a quote that's a quote and i think you know often you know within some sectors of american christianity uh there's this hubris this arrogance that we've got it all and we have the tradition and we have theology and we're going to examine everybody else and we're going to see if they are just the right kind of Christians. Oh, my word. I, I've seen this over and over again. Another In that same session, another student raised his hand and said, what gives them the right to sit at the table with us? And, and thank God there's another student in the class who said, who says it's your table? Oh, that's a good one. That, that's that's exactly. a good one. And, and we have to recognize that scripture is our scripture for the church through history around the globe. And theology is our task as a church. And we democratize the faith by listening to the church fathers and mm -hmm. discovering more of the church mothers. And we, we mm -hmm. listen to that historical conversation. You know, a lot of people are pretty cool on Calvin and Luther and Augustine and uh, and the rest. But but that's the same thing that we sit at the table with them. But we also sit at the table with Kwame Bediako, the late Kwame Bediako mm -hmm. of, of Kenya, and the late René Padilla from Ecuador. And we understand theology together. We eat theology together. Mm -hmm. And that's it. So I think the food... It's all about the food. I'm glad, you, <laughs> I'm glad you asked about the food. In fact, where is it? Where is it? Would you would you allow me to read something to sure. you? Sure. And this is um, from uh, John Mbiti. Oh, yeah. And, John Mbiti. Uh, I know who John Mbiti is. I mean, many in our audience may not, but another African theologian. Yes. And a, a Kenyan and uh, was really one of the great pioneers of majority world theology in, in Africa. So Mabiti, and, and whether you agree with everything that Mabiti says or not, is in some ways immaterial. I mean, come on, we don't always agree with ourselves. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. I take, I take medication. I take medication for that. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> but this is from an article called Theological Impotence and the universality of the church. Okay? Okay, okay. So this is John B.T. And and it's M-B-I-T-I -I. for your right. B.T. And kind of, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it exactly right, but mm, something. Well, it, most Africans, that, they hold that mm, yeah, B.T. I love it. B.T. Love it. Okay. And, and listen, this is all about food. 
Okay. We're all about food. Let's do it. We have eaten theology with you. He's talking about Western theology. We have eaten theology with you. We have drunk theology with you. We have dreamed theology with you. But it has all been one-sided. It has been, in a sense, your theology. We know you theologically. The question is, do you know us theologically? Would you like to know us theologically? Can you know us theologically? You have become a major subconscious part of our theologizing. And we are privileged to be so involved in you through the fellowship we share in Christ. When will you make us part of your subconscious process of theologizing? Mm. When will you eat theology with us? I remember this article. That's a great article. Yeah, no, that, that's tremendous. And, and um, I think Mibiti hit it. You know, when will you eat theology with us? When, when will you drink theology with us? When will you enter into this dialogue with us? And that's why I'm grateful for the work that you're doing and many mm-hmm. others trying to say, look, we're part of a global conversation. Mm-hmm. And if we're talking about African theology or Asian theology or theologies that are coming out of Oceania and and, and listening to them, uh, what, what kind of riches are brothers and sisters around the globe putting on the table for us? You know, what's that haggis? You know, what's what's the what's the Gaijo Pinto? What are those elements of the gospel that they're thinking through and working on that benefit all of us? It's not just for them, it is for the whole church, you know, as they're doing theology from and to their context, but it's also really what I believe and and you believe and so many believe it is a gift to the whole church. So there's a new reformation going on, a macro reformation. Um, and that's uh, something I'm sure that, you know, that many of your uh, guests have, have spoken about that. Uh, oh, many, well, we, we all see it. God's moving around the world. The church is increasing. I mean, not, not just increasing around the world, but it's the whole demographic makeup. I mean, as we would say a hundred years ago, the average Christian was probably a white male in Spain. Mm-hmm. And now it's an African woman in Nigeria. And mm-hmm. so it, it's this That's massive, yeah, it's this massive shift. And even as you're talking about food, going back for a moment, and, and, oh, we still have the other questions we got to get through Gene. We're getting ahead of ourselves. You got to get back okay. to the question. Okay. Here's number four. Funniest cross-cultural experience. <laughs> I don't know if I can say it. Oh, my word. Let's hear it. Um, yeah. Um, I was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. Oh, gosh. You might need to edit this out. <laughs> Sometimes these are the best ones. <laughs> I, was, I was teaching on the, uh, I was in Costa Rica at the Seminario Asepa. And we were going through the Gospels. I was on this Sermon on the Mount and came to that text, you know, that we're the, uh, we're the salt of the earth. And I said, uh, hermanos y hermanas, brothers and sisters, somos sal de la tierra. We're the salt of the earth. Somos el preservativo en el mundo. 
And I want to say we were the preservative in the world in the world. And the class absolutely broke up in hysterical laughter. <laughs> so, what? What? What did I say? What's going on here? And somebody whispered to me, well, that word means a condom. <laughs> Where's the condom of the earth? <laughs> oh, oh, my. That's staying in, Gene. That is staying in because that's good. Because that's real life, right? It's real life. That, that, was, that was life. It's real life. But, you know, you know and, and the beautiful thing, you know, here I am. I'm a, I'm a Chicago boy and I'm, I've learned Spanish and I'm, I'm teaching away here. And there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a differential between me and the students, you know, and, and I got gray hair and I got a PhD and I'm American and whether wealthy or not, we were always considered to be wealthy and, and everything like that. All of a sudden, all of a sudden the tables turn and I'm the learner and I'm listening. And I'm learning the language. And they're my teachers here. I uh, remember one dear student, Claudia, who after every class would come and, and give me a little piece of paper with the grammatical and, and uh, lexical errors I had committed during my lecture. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was so wonderful to have this uh, power differential broken down. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I'm there in all of my linguistic weakness, and they're having a good time with it, and I'm having a good time with it, and and the the dynamics change. Now now we're 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 together, we're together, we're walking together, we're walking together, and yeah, we all got feet of clay, and we're all bumbling through, and we need one another. We need, we need one another, and. That was that was the beauty of that moment, that incredibly embarrassing moment. <laughs> uh, it was oh, but those are good. I mean, we've yeah. had some we've had some funny stories of people, and and I had a woman named um, Audrey Frank on, and her episode is it, just brilliant. She she was working with Muslim women in an African nation, and she was speaking in Arabic, and she was yelling at a guy, and she was using the wrong terminology so badly that. Her friend grabbed her when she was walking back to her apartment, threw her into her room. And she goes, you can't say that. Like it was, it was, you know, I was talking about genitalia, I think was the the terminology she was using and she was mortified of course. But I mean, this is just, this is the, the reality of trying to share and speak a language outside of yourself. But if you can laugh at yourself and, and as people laugh at you, hopefully it's not scandalous or shame, you know, shameful. But I, I think laughing at ourselves is, is, a, is a good first step. Um, here, here's your last question of the fast five. It's become a slow five, but that's okay for today. Number five, if you were a, a region of the world other than the United States, what region would you be and why? Hmm. Well, I mean, you know, it, it was, uh, it, I'd say Latin America. Mm. Uh, that's where we, we lived for uh, 13 years. So, uh, mm. And then uh, just got back from, we're back in Chicago right now, spent a couple of years in South Florida, in the Miami area. And, um, you know, I was the only Anglo on on the staff. So I was living in, I was living cross-culturally. Everybody around me, they were were Cuban and Puerto Rican and Colombian, Dominican and Haitian and from Guyana. And uh, so is Caribbean, uh, Latin America. So that's, that's, 
you know, that's that's our 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 other our other home. And our youngest was born in Costa Rica. Our both of our daughters are bilingual and and bicultural. And so there's a uh, a rootedness there. In fact, I just got back uh, from Costa Rica from the Seminario Sepa in San Jose, where I taught, and they had their 40th uh, uh, anniversary celebration. So it's just awesome. a it's just a, a marvelous time. And um, again, you know, el, el ritmo es diferente. The the rhythms are different. Dominican Republic, when we were there, it, it moved at the rhythm of merengue and uh merengue music and you know it gets inside of you it, the music gets inside of me it just doesn't come out my feet i can't dance <laughs> but, uh, doesn't mean i'm not gonna try right that, that's <laughs> exactly try. it that's exactly it no, but uh, but i think you know and and i i think that one of the things that all of us uh need to attend to is making sure that we ourselves and our children have significant cross-cultural experiences, whether it's, as you learned in the city of Chicago, crossing uh, cultural divides or in another country. I'm not talking about these uh, missionary tourism industry, yeah. you know, where you go in and you're in an American bubble and you come back with all the glory stories. I'm talking about significant time where you spend time there listening, learning language, could be an English speaking place that uh, is another culture. It might be Ireland, you know, uh, or Scotland like us or, or England, but, but spending time and learning the wonderful uh, multifaceted thing that God has done in the human community, uh, mm-hmm. that, that diversity and all of us in a very uh, conflicted world need to learn how to cross those cultural boundaries and listen again with a hermeneutic of charity and an open heart and joy to how other people view the world and and see things and that i think is humbling and enriching as as well and i think you know as a human community I'm I'm writing a commentary right now in the book of acts i'm doing the uh, revision of the tyndale commentary on the book of acts and the cross-cultural journeys in there. Oh, the whole book is that. Oh, it is. And it, but it, starting on Pentecost, oh, you know, yeah. Where yeah. you've got you've got these diaspora Jews who are in Jerusalem, and um, and you know they heard the speaking in tongues in their own languages. Well, you know they 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 are bicultural bilingual people mm-hmm. and and so that out to the ends of the earth of acts 1 8 is happening right there on on the day of pentecost but there's this cross-cultural journey that's always happening happening oh well, I, I think that's one of the things that i i missed when i was younger is you read the book of acts and, and you hear people talking about oh it's you know the explosion of the church yes not going to disagree or it's the holy spirit working Yes, that's true. But the Holy Spirit working and how these cultures are interacting with one another is one of the greatest miracles that I see that's happening. I no, mean, it's, 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 it's phenomenal. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. And if yeah. you can if you can put those cultural lenses on, your view of God it just it explodes. Ta-da. You got it. 
Because, yeah. you know, we, we're always doing theology from a place and to a place. Now, that can be limiting or it can be enriching. You know, walking alongside of um, uh, Native American, First Nations, Aboriginal, Indigenous Christians, for me, has been just absolutely mind-boggling because they understand as they come and read scripture, they read Genesis 1 in a way that I was never taught to read it. We'd have our debates, you know, you remember the debates, of, well, is, is this six literal days or not? You know, and, and, and what they're seeing is relationship, whether they're seeing relationship with creator in the world that was created, but us with the rest of creation, not over and above, but with, formed out of the dust of the ground. And what is our relationship? So I mentioned uh, before we came on, Randy Woodley, a Cherokee scholar, uh, his book, Shalom in the Community, the, oh gosh, no, it just slipped my mind. Shalom in the Community of Creation, that book that, that helps us to understand how an indigenous Christian will read those texts faithfully faithfully and well, but bringing out stuff that I never got when I was a student at the at uh, Wheaton College or graduate school or University of Aberdeen, the way that, that God's agency is in the world. So they have a very, very deep ecological theology that we need to uh, listen to as we understand that uh, we are part of that creation and so they they that community of creation and you know we just think about all that's out there as out there but not as us as part of it Mm -hmm. and that's not to negate the imago dei by any means but it is to say that we are part of a whole big thing that god has done and what kind of responsibilities does that place upon us and what can we learn from, mm-hmm. from creation? So they're listening deeply to what we would call general revelation. Now, general revelation, in my theological training, it was like skipping the stone on the water. I mean, it was like, dang, okay. You know, we go right to Romans 1, and uh, and we talk about, uh, you know, idolatry, and, and Paul is dead set against idolatry. Amen, amen, amen. Mm-hmm. But we forget the first part of that treatise against idolatry in Romans 1, 18 and following, where, where Paul talks about the way that God, by his agency, reveals himself. Mm-hmm. And then he has this, this, this line in there. He says, and although they knew God, they did not worship him as God. Now, when I was trained, it was always, we'd go to the second part of that always, immediately. And, you know, do the condemnation of idolatry with Paul. Well, that's right. That's right. But there's something he says right before that, although they knew God. Mm-hmm. And, and what is God doing in the world? You see, the Africans deal with the same stuff. And one of the big questions, as you know, in African Christian theology is, did uh, God, did the missionaries bring God to Africa or did God bring the missionaries? Oh, we would say, well, you know, God brought the gospel. God brought the missionaries. 
Well, then the knock-on question is, where was God before the missionaries came? Was God absent from Africa before the gospel came? You know, and we have folk like like Abraham and Melchizedek and uh, or, or Paul in Athens. You know, he says, you know, I saw these altars, the unknown God, you know, that which you worship as unknown. This is the one I'm going to preach to you. Mm-hmm. And he even quotes, you know. Um, Epimenid- uh, Epimenides and, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. And so. Uh, you know, what is God's agency in the world? Anyway, what I'm saying is that, you know, our African brothers and sisters are talking about this, our indigenous brothers and sisters are talking about this, and they open up dimensions of the faith that maybe we didn't, didn't take a look at as Anglo-Christians raised in the in the North. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you mentioned the global shift of, of Christianity. Christianity has moved south and east. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I have a hard time talking about a Korea as a global South. Right, but, uh, um, but what is it? Uh, in 1910, 82% of Christians lived in the global North. Well, is it, isn't that the like I, I was reading that with Alan? Yeah, he said that I, I want to say it was in 1910, 22,000 missionaries were sent out. And he, I think he said it was 82%, maybe that number were all from the north yeah. with skin like mine. But he said, now there are 225,000. And I want to say now it's flipped, like 84% is from the, the global yeah. south. It's yeah. just the, the, the shift it is really, moving. really is amazing. And and that's part of the the maturing, uh, the, not only the, the numeric growth uh, in 2010, uh, 61%. Of Christians, 61% live in the global south. Projections are by 2050, 77% will live in the global mm-hmm. south, south and east. And I love, I, I'm sure you've read um, um, uh, Justo Gonzalez. Oh, uh, yes, 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 yes. Cuban, Cuban-American. Historian. Theologian. Yeah, theologian historian. Oh, he's just, he's just marvelous. I mean, I always, as a, as a young uh uh, student, I, I learned about Husto as a church historian. Little did I know uh, how he was a great theologian. But he talks about the the four self church. You know, it's a self funding, self propagating, self governing. But then he says we forgot the fourth self, self theologizing. That's it. Are we only half alive? Embers Looking, wandering all the time, we see the kingdom. So let's go back just for a moment, because I know that um, in speaking to some people, they they don't even understand the terminology that we're using when we use the term. And even in the title of your book, Majority World Theology. Let's just start there, because some people are still using different terminology. Explain right. what you mean by majority world for a moment. Okay. Now, we've, we've, we're going through a bit of a language. Uh, yep. Uh, evolution here. We used to talk about the third world, which was the non-Western world, the third world. But, you know, that language has gone out of date and it it can sound pejorative Mm -hmm. that they are third world and therefore third rate. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people think about Africa, Asia, 
Latin America as as those others that aren't as developed as as us. And so this is language that um, people in the uh, missiological, pastoral, uh, theological communities are getting away from third world. Some went to two thirds world. Mm-hmm. And they start talked about, well, the majority of people live outside of the North Atlantic region. And uh, so that's the two thirds world. And that's, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's right. It's a way to talk about the, uh, uh, the world. Some people will um, talk about the global South. And that's language that I mentioned. I was just mm-hmm. reading again this week on the global south. But really, how do you how do you how do you talk about China or or, or Korea yeah. or Japan as global south? So global south and east. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, that's very cumbersome. And I think it it not, I may be wrong here, but I think it was Langham Partnership, John Stott, uh, that that came up with the language majority world. Mm-hmm. And this is where the majority of people live. And the majority of Christians live as well. And so when we talk about majority world, we're talking about Africa, Asia, Latin America, Oceania, as uh, those places, not only that have the greatest populations in general, but where the majority of Christians uh, live. As we see a decline in North Atlantic Christian communities, we're watching that. We've watched it in Europe. We're watching it here in North America. This steady decline of, uh, uh, you know, who knows what God's going to do in <laughs> revival. I mean, mm-hmm. this revival at Asbury spread across the nation. But um, uh, but there's been a general trend down, whereas the trend is on the up in the, quote unquote, majority world. And those brothers and sisters, you know, you think about agencies like Summer Institute of Linguistics, uh, United Bible Societies, that have done a tremendous job in translating the Word of God. Um, Lamansani, the late Lamansani of Yale University, uh, talked about the way that Scripture is translated being the principle by which we have to think about the faith being translated into the cultures of the world. So our brothers and sisters in the majority world, have scripture in their languages, and they're saying, we we can read scripture, you know, yeah. and we can do theology that is uh, related to our context. The um, great Peruvian theologian, Samuel Escobar, uh, talked to me many years ago, and he said to me, Eugenio, they call me Eugenio in Latin America, Eugenio, toda la teología es contextual. All theology is contextual. So let, let's stop there for a second, because I think sure. I think you've hit on something that our audience is, is still trying to kind of catch their breath on. So just to review, the majority world is the idea that the, the most of the world lives outside of the United States. I don't know if my listeners understand that or not, because we think our world is the world. But when you look at what it, whatever it is now, over 8 billion people, and we have 300 and some million, we're actually very small in mm-hmm. comparison to the rest of the world, although our influence has been... Uh, probably a little over, uh, you know, 
disproportionate, let's say, to the rest of the world. But but now we're seeing this this shift that's occurring where where many of the missions work that's going on just globally is is found root, and these churches are maturing. And you mentioned the four selves, and one of those was self theologizing. Now I know some people are saying, "Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We should never do theology. Theology's already been done for us." You know, we have the scriptures. What else do we have to learn? Just as you were talking about those students who made their their question like, hey, we can correct them. Why? And, and you also mentioned all theology is contextual theology. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's let's talk about what does contextual theology and why do we need to self-theologize, which means develop theology uh, or a people needs to develop a theology. They're not just inheriting it from one group. Mm-hmm. But they are they are having to create their own. How, how do we justify that or or juxtapose that with scripture where some would say, oh, we already have theology. So let's help our right, people see right, that. Right. Well, I mean, we let's let's begin right here with with scripture. Yes, we we have the 66 books of of scripture. Uh, this is our our canon, the our our rule, our measuring stick uh, for the faith, the yardstick of faith. So we have the canon of scripture. But we always have to recognize that uh, although this is a faith once and for all delivered to the saints, the task of theology is always ongoing. See, So the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans to the Roman church to address particular situations that were going down in the Roman church. He's going to go visit there. He's trying to raise funds to go to Spain and mm-hmm. their support. He's dealing with uh, certain tensions between the Jewish and the Gentile believers in the city of Rome. And uh, so he's, he's writing this letter to them. Now, it was written to them, and Paul as an apostle is speaking the word of God. And insofar as that letter is the word of God, it is for us as well, but it wasn't written to us. Mm-hmm. Written, elaborate on that. Elaborate on that. And, and he wrote it in response to a particular situation that was going down in the city of Rome. It was written to them. In fact, Phoebe, who's mentioned there, the uh, a leader of the church in Sancrea, was probably the messenger that took that letter there and the messengers would explain some details that weren't clear i mean very often that was their role so it was written to them in response to things that paul knew about and and anticipation as i said of this this journey is going to take he's going to pass through rome and church father said he did eventually get to spain we don't have evidence of that from the new testament it was written to them it was written in another culture, in another language, to a particular people that are geographically and historically distanced from us. Mm-hmm. There's something extremely alien about Scripture. That's why we translate, for heaven's sakes. You know, I mean, most of us, most believers, cannot go and read the Bible as it was written and copied in Hebrew and Aramaic for the Old Testament and in Greek. So we we recognize that there's something alien about Scripture. It was for another audience, another time, another place. 
So we translate it. Why? Because we believe it has a message that although it wasn't written to us, we're not sitting there in the city of Rome, but it is for us that it has a message that endures beyond that original situation. And that's the task of biblical interpretation and then theology. So what does the book of Romans have to do with us in the 21st century living in Florida or Chicago or wherever we might be living? What does it have to do with us? So we're always doing this negotiation um, between Scripture and our context. We're trying to read it faithfully within our context to say, what's God's message now? For us, I mean, we're not collecting money for Paul to go to Rome, but there's a message in here about our need to support those who are on bringing the gospel to lands far, far beyond. Uh, the book of Romans deals with this terrible conflict between the Jews and Gentiles in the church. And Paul has to knock some heads to bring them together. And we we learn about that. We read some of the commentaries, like the one by uh, ones by Robert Jewett on uh, Romans, just marvelous stuff talking about this issue. Well, then we, we think about, okay, so what's God's plan for Jews and Gentiles today? And also, is, does Romans and the message of justification by faith have something to do with the cultural divisions and conflicts that we see in our society and throughout the world. How is it that Jews and Gentiles could sit together at table and worship the one Lord? And and that's that's the miracle. And there wasn't there there was one church there in Ephesians, you know, Paul talks about bringing these Jews and Gentiles together, making them into one body and reconciling them to God. Now, all I'm saying is that the task of theology is never done. We're always asking questions. Lord, what does your message have to do with my world and my life? And I read scripture. I want to listen to the biblical author. I want to be faithful to uh, him or her uh, message by Mary and, and Elizabeth and the Magnificat, you know, and Luke. I want to be faithful in hearing them well within their world with it. But then I have to ask, okay, so what is this, the Magnificat, which talks about bringing down the mighty and exalting those who are lowly? What does that have to do with me and, and my world today? That's the task of theology. Wherever you pray, wherever you lay, I'll be there when you call me. Over rivers and roads, wherever you roam, I'll be there when you call me. A few years back, I had open heart surgery. I'm I'm a, I'm a miracle sitting here. Hmm. Uh, I almost died a few times after that. It was an ugly situation. I was sitting there in the hospital in um, uh, next door to Wheaton. And uh, I'd come through it, uh, almost died a couple of times. And I'm sitting there in my bed after having read my brothers and sisters in Asia, Africa, Latin America, around the globe. And I, I thought to myself, 
how do I do theology from this hospital bed? How do I think about my faith? Besides people coming in and saying, we're going to pray for you, or I trust in God that, that I'll survive this surgery. How do I think about my faith? How do I do theology from a place and, and to a place? And so my brothers and sisters in Africa, Asia, Latin America were talk, talking to me about theological method and how we, how we read. And we begin with certain questions that we bring to Scripture. And then we look in Scripture and we um, uh, find that the relevance and the importance, the meaning of Scripture within that particular context. Now, Paul and Peter and John and, and David and Isaiah, none of them talked about my situation, open heart surgery, being in a hospital bed. None of them. None of them. So does that have nothing to do with me or does it have a lot to do with me? So I found uh, questions. Of, I have a, a, a porcine valve, a pig valve that mm -hmm. keeps my, uh, my heart going, uh, uh, my aortic valve. What kind of resources do I have to think about that as a Christian by being fused with, with, with a pig? Or what about the community that it took to put together this hospital and this medical staff and the administrative staff and the insurance? What kind of community uh, was needed for that? So what's my relationship with the next of rest of creation? What's my relationship with this community that's helped me to stay alive? Uh, what does it mean to do this tremendous act of violence to the human to the human body so that um, so that I could be repaired and live uh, and not violate the Hippocratic oath. You know, you think about the cross of Christ and how violence was done to Jesus for us and for our salvation. So within all these issues, these questions about my relationship with the rest of creation, community, the violence of surgery, um, and and there was issues of justice in there. Why was it that I was so well taken care of and people in other parts of the world are not, even people here in the United States? These are all theological issues. The task of theology is never done. Never. Well, never. because culture is always changing, too. As, as soon as we, I mean, we think about Martin Luther writing his statements, he's writing it against a backdrop. Even the Reformation takes it takes place in a in a backdrop where the faith was being abused and misunderstood. Right. And so, right. as the faith is Pencil being selling the indulgences, yeah, yep. exactly. And is I mean, and what was it? It's been said heterodoxy is the mother of all orthodoxy. Well, where <laughs> we encounter we encounter yep. the aberrant views, and then we have to define what God is saying, or and not that we're creating it. We're looking to Scripture. To understand who he is in his person and his perfections and well and how his purpose is being worked out in the world. So we're always, as you said, and as as it's been said by many missionaries, that you're self-theologizing. But mm -hmm. that that brings another question. I, I was at a church in Texas years ago. I was I was asked to interview for a position, and it was eight different churches that had all been struggling that came together to form one church. Mm -hmm. So I get invited to this church and I get an interview that lasts in, uh, go into someone's home, you know, you have tea and cookies and coffee and that kind of thing. And then they proceeded to grill me for three and a half hours on my theology. 
Mm-hmm. And I got, they got done and they said, do you have any questions for us? And I went, Oh yeah. <laughs> because each group had their own pet issue. And, and, and it became uh, my, my question then became this with all of you coming together. How do you define what's wrong? I mean, how do you, how do you define what is okay and what's in play and what's not in play? I mean, I, I don't understand how you define heresy at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. When we're encountering theology and we're encountering people doing self-theology uh, or self-theologizing, which I am in a total agreement with, the question then becomes, how do you determine what is between what is right and mm-hmm. what is wrong? And mm-hmm. what then becomes the determinant? Right. What, yeah. what is the criteria? Is it tradition? I mean, scripture should be number one. The whole, it, it, but, but when you have people both citing scripture, Mm-hmm. And are we going back through history who are, mm-hmm. and looking at their theology within a certain framework? Mm-hmm. How do we de- de- determine between what is timeless and transcultural and what is contextual? Right. Well, uh, it's, it's first, once again, it's all contextual. Uh, I mean, it, it, and, and we need to get our head around this, this fundamental fact that, that God gets in the mix of history. A good point. Jesus spoke Aramaic. He could handle scripture in Hebrew. When he was betrayed, Judas had to go up and say, It's the one I'm going to kiss. He's not walking around with a white robe and a halo and all the rest. No, no. Definitely doesn't look Anglo. He no. looked like everybody else. He looked like a common Jew yeah. in the first century. Middle he looked Eastern, like a common right? Jewish man. Yeah. The word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And there it is. That that God is always getting mixed up in, in history and, and does his work within history. Now, that's why I think all of us have to remember that we're involved in this process of figuring out, as you're you're rightly questioning, what is God's message to us in this community in this time? with a faith that's been once and for all delivered to the saints, but then is inserted into all of the warp and woof of our existence in, in culture. Now, I think that the touch point is you, is scripture itself, and is what we are preaching, is what we're teaching, faithful to scripture. But Here's the problem that we've run into. And this is a problem in working with uh, students and, and fellow faculty and, and church members and pastors about majority world theology. They say, well, we already got theology. I mean, I've got, I got Burkhoff on the shelf or I've got Grudem on the shelf. And, 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 and there it is. But we forget that, that, that their engagement with Scripture they have worked their dead level best to be faithful to the message of Paul in Romans or Peter in First Peter and the Gospels. They've worked their dead level best to be faithful, and they've listened across time. But they're also very, very much people of their own culture. So, for example, um, if I'm reading as a Westerner from the Midwest, 
I'm somebody from the, the, the global north. I am part of the West. I'm a Midwesterner. And I'm raised on individualism. You know, it's uh, uh, my way or nothing at all. I did it my way. We sang with Frank Sinatra. Yeah, right, you know, right. uh, you go your way, I'll go mine. And and we, we've got this as this cultural touch, touch point, the self-made person, you know, and I'm going to pull myself up and do, and we have a fierce individualism. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, our brothers and sisters in Africa are much more dyadic, much more communitarian. And instead of Descartes, I think, therefore I am, which puts the locus on the individual, it's a cognatus ergo sum. Uh, it's what I'm a part of. And I find my identity and my existence in community. It's not what I am as an individual, but what I'm a, I'm a part of. They're much more communitarian. Sense of belonging within the indigenous community. It's who claims you, what community claims you. Now, when you go to scripture with a communitarian outlook, you're going to see stuff that you never saw before. Right. Because it's all collectivist, it's all communitarian. And we that's why the American church and Canadian church, North American church, it's a really tough time with church. I got to sit at home with my video and I'm, uh, you know, it's Jesus and me and I'm good with that. And I'll watch you on the screen and that's it. I'm sorry. God created us in community and our brothers and sisters in the majority world come from their place. This, this understanding of our embeddedness in humanity and they read scripture and they go, wow, look at that. And 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 then they hand that off to us. Now uh, the deal is that what we have inherited as Western theology is that it's it's Western theological tradition. And as I was reading to you from John Beatty, very much appreciated, very much accepted. You know, and we believe in one God; they believe in one God. We believe in the Trinity; they believe in the Trinity. We believe that Christ died for our sins. They believe that Christ died for him. We believe that Christ was raised from the dead. They believe that Christ was raised from the dead. We believe that Christ is coming again. They believe that Christ is coming again. I mean, so, so on these on these fundamentals, we're, we're 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 like this. But they're seeing dimensions of the faith that we miss, and sometimes our views are distorted. Latin Americans. I was listening to. Uh, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez a few years back. And Gutierrez was talking about what it meant to be a parish priest in the barrio Salima, Peru. And what did his theological training give him pastorally to be able to address the depth of poverty he, he was living among and the tremendous economic disparities in society. How do you deal with that? And all of his training, he was trained as a, a frontline. He was trained in Europe. And he said, it, it didn't help me. Mm. And whatever you think about liberation theology, and that's not, not my, I'm not pushing liberation, liberation theology, but it started with a question within a place. Mm. And what he saw in scripture was that God is concerned about the rich and the poor. 
God is concerned about justice. God is concerned about economics. See, it took a Latin American to kick our anatomy and tell us that there is a social dimension to the gospel of Christ. Something that we, uh, again, I, I never heard about that as I was trained in, in top theological institutions in the world. I never heard about that. There's a Latin Americans that had come along and say, Gene, Eugenio, you got a few things to learn about the gospel. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So that's why I think, you know, we have to read in community, en conjunto, as they say in, in Spanish. It's not just about I'm doing my own thing. It's not just, we, we again, we that individualistic reflex, I think, is antithetical to Scripture. We, we do it en comunidad, in community with others and we go back and forth you and me and 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 others and and colleagues and church members we go back and forth to try to work out our theology that's faithful to scripture in harmony with the theological tradition but also recognizing that this theological process never ends that's a very long-winded response to your question well but I, but i think it's true i mean we're we're trying to learn we want to be the people of god where we're at we want to be able to bond with one another and one of the values that we really hold dear is not just the great commission and the great commandment but the great community yeah exactly uh, that the john 17 i pray they may be one that we are one so that the world may know and it's through that unity but it's also means and you've alluded to it is not just us talking but also listening to one mm -hmm. another just like in a marriage in any type of marriage if you're just the one talking and you're not listening, then you're in trouble. And one of the one of the reasons we chose Apollos as our quote unquote patron saint, uh, you know, our namesake, is because Apollos is a man who is an educated Alexandrian Jew who gets converted, and I in, in the most crazy way to me, he hears about the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. That's it. Somehow he comes to know Jesus, and then he's preaching. He's sharing what he knows, but then a Priscilla and Aquila. This, this woman and this man pull him alongside to explain the way of God more accurately. And that's what we want to be. We want to be not just proclaiming the truth, but also listening for listening to those who know it better so that we can learn from them. And so that our vision of God might grow and we might become more effective stewards and agents, uh, ambassadors of Christ where we're at in the world. Yeah. I, I, and I think that that's right. You know, one of the things that um, I, I think that our, our uh, global community of Christians give us also is a real sense of what it means to do theology within within context or read scripture within context. Uh, it was a late uh, John Mackay in his um, uh, I got it right here uh, in his preface to Christian theology, really old book uh, here. But he talks about two ways of doing theology, one being from the balcony. And he's thinking about that, those kind of short, uh, small balconies in a Spanish home. Uh, and it's that point where you're trying to watch everything as the detached objective observer. And then he said, there's another way to do theology, and that's from the road. And uh, I think his expression here is, uh, is, is just 
incredible. He, as he talks about doing theology from the road and the road where uh, that place where life is uh, lived tensely, uh, where decisions are made, um, and and it's in that 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 stuff of 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 life. And this is, you know, this you're your pastor. You you understand this. You know, people 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 have have realities that they have to face that are very real. And they're wondering what the gospel has to do with them. And, and then you tell them it does have to do with, with you. And let me show you how. Well, you've just done theology and you've done contextual theology at that at that point and bringing to bear and again, you know, our divisions in in the American society today. How the how in the world is that going to be healed? Well, I think I think the answer is in places like, uh, you know, the Gospel of John: "Love your neighbor as yourself," what Jesus taught us, and also in uh, in the Book of Romans about how communities come together, uh, Jew and Gentile divisions. So our brothers and sisters have brought us uh, fresh visions of of the faith and. And what kind of arrogance is it on our part to not listen to them? You know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, uh, and, and what I want to get past is, and I say this um, as somebody trained in, in very strong evangelical communities, one of our reflexes is that we always want to examine it and judge it and dissect it and, and smell it, make sure, taste it, see if it's right by us. And we put ourselves up on the pinnacle as if we were the arbitrators of all truth. And um, maybe we're not that. And maybe we need a little bit more humility in saying that, um, you know, I got, I got something to learn from a, a Cuban-American, Sucunzanas, or I got something to learn from Johanna Catanacho. Have you ever heard that name? I haven't. I haven't. Okay. Johanna Catanacho, get this, he's a, a Palestinian Christian. He was raised at Seventh Station of the Cross in Jerusalem. He was an atheist, hated the Jewish populace as a Palestinian. Christ got a hold of him and um, changed this man into somebody who walked and lived with the love of Christ. Johanna Catanacho, now Dr. Catanacho, made his way to Trinity International University and knocked out his PhD in Old Testament under Willem van Gemmeren there. So Palestinian Christian doing Old Testament biblical studies, okay? That's phenomenal. Okay. Now, Just that alone. Then, Dr. Capnacho writes on a theology of land from a Palestinian Christian perspective, rooted deeply in Scripture. And I remember the first article that he came out of uh, this, and it was entitled, uh, Christ is the Owner of Haaretz. Christ is the owner of the land. And he's written, uh, you can see it across the room, uh, a book called The Land of Christ. Well, I watched with my students uh, at Wheaton College as uh, Dr. Cotton would come in and speak to them. I watched a C-train 
sea change and their understanding of land, understanding of the land of Israel. And let me tell you, there was a challenge to a lot of uh, North Atlantic evangelical theology regarding land. Now, you want to go back and forth with Johanna, or uh, he teaches at Bethlehem Bible College, along with Munther Isaac. Both, uh, both of them worked on theologies of land. Well, what does it mean then to listen to uh, them or Mishri Rahab about theology of land? Um, land as a theological category that we, you know, don't think about, but they do. And it's something that indigenous Christians think a lot about. Um, South African Christians uh, think about, I mentioned to you before we, we started recording here about a book that uh, KKO and I have edited on theologies of land, uh, published by Cascade. Uh, to to hear parts of the biblical story within our contemporary context is brought to us by majority world Christians. We go, why didn't I think about that? Why don't I have theology of land? Why do I look at this just property and not understand that here where I'm living in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, that I need a theology of land as well? And I, it's absent. It was never taught to me. But it takes a Palestinian and a South African and a Honduran and a Cherokee uh, to to teach me about land. That's a great point. That 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 is even some pretty amazing insight and a lot of things I'm sure that our audience has not thought about. But Gene, I know that your time is very limited today. Um, how can people learn more about you and what you're doing? Well, I, th I think the, the best way is uh, to take a look on on Amazon. You'll find uh, my uh, my publications there, uh, and the areas where I work are in uh, uh, New Testament uh, studies. And there's a relationship between those studies and the work that I do with Majority World. Uh, Christians and biblical studies and theology. So I've published in both these areas, but both of them are related. Uh, that the biblical message, message uh, was birthed within a particular historical context. So, for example, the book that uh, Gary Burge, now the dean of uh, Calvin Seminary, and I wrote uh, called uh, The New Testament Antiquity, looks at the biblical text, it's a New Testament introduction or survey, but looks at it from the standpoint of what was going on in the first century and how do the biblical authors, New Testament authors, engage with society of their day? How do they do contextual theology? Basically what they're doing. <laughs> and uh, But then that's just the counterpoint to this other thing of uh, working on... Uh, Majority World Theology, Christian Doctrine, Global Context by IVP, or the uh, book that I mentioned to you uh, uh, before um, on Global Theology and Evangelical Perspective that Jeff Greenman and I edited, uh, published by uh, InterVarsity. So th both of those are out there. I think that's that's the best way to take a look at it uh, uh, and and to uh, find out where my head has been at. and. Uh, 
I, I feel in many ways uh, that I'm nothing more than than a midwife. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm watching and celebrating what is happening around the globe and what God was doing back in the first century as well, you know, and, and what's God doing in our world today. And it's all relevant for us, wherever we might be, even in North Florida. Yeah, even in North Florida, even though North Florida. Gene, thank you so much for coming on Apollo's Water. Well, my joy, and thank you, and God bless you and uh, and all your listeners and watchers out there. God bless you all. There is no such thing as contextless theology, and that's a good thing. Gene's perspective is an important one for us Westerners to catch. It's easy to think that we have all the answers to every question, but we don't. We get stuck, as I've said before, and we need someone to help pull us out. And that's why there are many of things that we need to be able to look at across the world and across time, because we've not had to experience it. We're experiencing it for the first time. And we need other people to help pull us out of our stuckness. There are very different ways of looking at the world that just feel alien to us, but which might actually be closer to the world of the Bible than our own. And maybe, just maybe, we have a thing or two to learn. It's not that we don't have anything to teach. We do. But we also have some things to learn. Look, there are things, truths that just are. Things that we believe as Christians that are the non-negotiables. Gene listed off a bunch. But the way that we interact with those things, well, our context is going to have a lot of influence there. However, the beautiful thing about this is that we know the truth of God is not some far off, distant, cold thing. No, God has, as Gene put it, always been mixed up in the mess with us. That means the eternal truths of God are more than timeless. They are timely. They matter in your life and my life. And frankly, everyone's lives. And we get to pull from that rich history of the church from the time of Christ to today, from our own backgrounds and histories as well as those of the church around the world. And we know that we don't always get this stuff right. And and I mean this as evangelicals. We need to be corrected, just like Apollos was. We need to be able to take a posture of listening, something that I don't think many people do, because that means that they think that they're insufficient or not smart enough. No, that's not it at all. God has given us his word and his bride to help us to see, to learn, and to also know in humility that we're not alone, and we're also not the first. We get to look to the, to the Bible, yes, but also to the church fathers, to the reformers, to the church in India and Latin America, to Africa and Korea, and everywhere in between. And for those that think that you don't need that to do it, well, I beg to differ. And I've got a whole bunch of ministry years in my background to tell you why. The trick is actually to start with scripture. It's really not even a trick. It's essential. We have to be grounded in it to such an extent that we can see the truth when people unlike us point it out and to see the problems too. You know, Gene actually quoted Gustavo Gutierrez. He noted that he has some things, important things to say to us that his Western education didn't prepare him for. And we agree with that. But he also has a lot of problematic things to say too. We wouldn't be comfortable endorsing much of it, but part of the process is learning to listen, to discern, and to learn. We don't have to agree with everything someone says to learn from them, but we do need to learn how to listen and discern. The scripture comes before all of that. 
before all of our church history and all of our traditions and the church around the world. The scriptures come before that. God has given us everything we need for salvation in them. But just like Priscilla and Aquila helped Apollos, the church throughout time helps us to remain faithful to the truth scripture reveals. We believe doing theology with the church across time and across the world is crucial because it is how we stay faithful to the truth and it keeps us from being stuck. And on a very pragmatic level, the church in different times and places can help us to overcome our blind spots, can help us to see God more clearly, and increasingly in our changing world offer practical help for situations that we have never before faced. What questions do you have from this episode? We'd love to hear from you. You can email me at travis at apolloswater.org or simply click and communicate with us on our Facebook page or Instagram or even on our YouTube channel. We'd love to be able to hear from you. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us to water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody.